to another episode of Talks Now. On this episode, we are talking to a frequent flyer to the ED who just doesn't look right today. We're joined with a great group from the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and we're going to spend the first half of this show looking at the diagnosis of this entity, followed by its physiology and treatment. As a reminder, send us your questions and comments to TalksNow at TalksNow.org or tweet at us at TalksNow and comment in the iTunes store. TalksNow is made possible by support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. And away we go. I'm Mike Overbeck from the University of Colorado. I'm Kenan Hurd from the University of Colorado. I'm Catherine Easley. I'm a PGY3 in the Denver Health Residency and Emergency Medicine and the University of Colorado. And I am Matt Zuckerman, Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado. I want to thank you all for coming with me today and joining me to talk about an important topic that I find that flummoxes many, many, many providers. And I remember a recent shift where I was working uh, with fine colleagues here, and they saw a patient that I thought was very interesting. Do you remember uh, this patient? I couldn't forget. So this was a 37-year-old male. He had a history of insulin-dependent diabetes, pancreatitis, alcohol abuse, and alcohol withdrawal, and previously had been seen with ketoacidosis and gastroparesis. He presented with abdominal pain, uh, mostly in his upper abdomen, associated emesis, and nausea in the setting of his daily significant alcohol use. So this is a patient that you very rarely see, or very commonly see? No, this is a patient that I see multiple times per shift almost. Okay, all right. But what made this patient different? The degree of his abdominal pain was out of proportion to the exam, I would say, and that he just was continuing to vomit. And he looked a little bit sicker than our traditional drank-too-much vomiting patient. So I know many of you are wondering, why is this what we're talking about? Are we just going to talk about a patient that I literally see every shift in my emergency department? But this is a toxicology podcast. And so we're going to throw you a curveball and ask, how is this intoxicated patient unlike other intoxicated patients? Well, we're in Colorado, Matt, so I think we got to find out if he was a daily marijuana user. Yes, that's an excellent point, right? So even though we know what we want to talk about, sadly, in Colorado, we're seeing more and more daily marijuana users who develop cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Is that a phenomenon that you're familiar with, Dr. Easley? It, it is a phenomenon that I've seen also near daily. This patient did not have an enthusiasm for marijuana the same way that he did for alcohol. He was about one to two pints a day, although I feel he was somewhat unreliable in that history. Okay, all right. So not a daily marijuana user. His favorite drug of choice was ethanol. So what were you worried about with him? What did you do? I think originally we were worried about like a gastroparesis type of problem, given that he was a poorly controlled diabetic as well. Any type of hypovolemia, just given him vomiting, 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 vomiting. And then also anybody that's like diaphoretic and really uncomfortable appearing with like bad belly pain, we too would worry about like any type of normal acute abdominal process, like in his liver or in his gallbladder or in his stomach. And then of course, like electrolyte abnormalities and acidosis potentially. So that is a great point. Please remember that this is a toxicology show, and so we'll be focusing on things of toxicologic importance. However, when you see one of these patients, you should always consider sepsis, abdominal catastrophes, ischemia, and other things. 
Don't go jumping the gun just because you just heard a podcast. And what was your initial approach to this patient? My initial approach was to catch a little bit of a wide net and kind of ruling out the differential that I kind of already alluded to. So check labs, get some fluids on board, try to control the symptoms, get a urine and see what sussed out. No imaging up front. Catherine, did you think you looked dry? Yes. And did you notice anything else on those vital signs? Because with a diabetic, you always kind of want to eyeball them and see if they look like they're kuzmaling or hyperventilating. So he was uh, tachypnic. He wasn't kuzmaling per se, like the typical diabetics that I've seen and that have been in like bad DKA. He was a little bit diaphoretic. He had tongue fasciculations. He was tremulous. And, and honestly, he looked also like he was in bad withdrawal. Okay. Are you able to smell ketones? A lot of people say, I can smell ketones. I cannot smell ketones. Okay. Me neither. And did you uh, try to resuscitate him in the meantime? I believe so. I think uh, my junior resident, I think, started with some normal saline boluses and some symptom control while we managed to get the rest of his workup started. So she gave him some benzos, gave him fluids, and gave him some antiemetics. What do you use for an antiemetic? Because the one thing, you know, when you see these alcoholics that are thrown up a lot, sometimes their electrolyte abnormalities can, can cause some QT problems, and certainly we run into issues around that. Right. So I would have started with controlling his withdrawal first, as both some benzos can control nausea and vomiting in addition to controlling his withdrawal. So start with either Valium or Ativan, and then go for something like less QTC prolonging. So I'd really stay away from like the Zofran and go for something more like Compazine or Raglan or Benadryl. Yeah. And it's always tricky because the frustrating thing is it used to be that Zofran was my go-to for almost everyone. And now the concern with ondansetron and QT prolongation, although it's important to remember that even the older antiemetics are also QT prolonging. And so really out of that group, the only one that isn't QT prolonging is going to be your lorazepam or diazepam, your benzodiazepines. But in this category, because there's often such a concomitant occurrence of ethanol withdrawal, you're often not wrong with giving some element of benzodiazepine. And the good thing is their tachycardia is a little protective too. You're less likely to have a malignant dysrhythmia when uh, you have tachycardia because of your lower R-to-R interval. Right. So, torsade de point, for those of you that want a quick review, actually, I'd recommend checking out Life in the Fast Lane, which has a nice review on this. But essentially... It is a uh, polymorphic ventricular tachycardia that you often see associated with long QT. And long QT represents physiologically prolonged myocyte repolarization. So during that prolonged repolarization, you can get some early after depolarizations, which can lead to PVCs. This is a problem when you get R on T phenomenon, which can initiate torsade de point. Treatment for this issue sometimes involves overdrive pacing, which speeds up the heart rate, decreases the RR interval, and thus decreases some of the time for this. Thus, someone who is already tachycardic and already has a relatively short RR interval is relatively protected. Also consider checking out Life in the Fast Lane's QT discussion for a discussion of the QT nomogram, which is pretty cool. For those of you still using uh, QTC, I think it'll blow your mind. Dr. Hurd did give us a talk last year on meds that are okay to use in QTC prolongation, and I wrote them down in my little book <laughs> that I bring every day to my shift that I never actually use. 
that makes you feel better. Yeah, I have it. That's it's your blankie. It's, it's full of sticky notes. It's your blankie. It's I had a blankie, blankie for a long this time. This is also my blankie, as Dr. Hurd and I talked about earlier. Yes. Okay. Scarves. Oh. All right. The scarves. security blanket. Portable. All right. So you uh, got some quote-unquote labs, belly labs, as I always hear them called, and then I scream inside my head. What, what labs did you get? We got a basic, a chemistry that will help us tell if he has any significant electrolyte abnormalities like hypokay, hyponatremia. We'll give us a bit or a look at his acid-base abnormality, see if he has a gap or not, see if he has azotemia or a bump in his creatinine. You can look at LFTs to see if he has something like alk hepatitis versus like an obstructive pattern, which would be very, uh, which wasn't what I was thinking, but it can help you see that. We did order a lactate in kind of the sepsis workup for him, a urine, because it will help us tell if he's infected or not. It will also tell if he's got any uh, ketones in his urine. And then also if we're looking at any other toxic alcohol or specifically ethylene glycol, he should have crystals in his urine. A CBC will look at his hemoglobin to see if he's had any big drop in his hemoglobin because he's a repeat offender. And so he's, and he's also a an alcohol enthusiast and could have a GI bleed and that could be what's going on. The surgeons would love for us to look at his white count. He might have an elevated white count with some nonspecific inflammation. Um, Mag, because that will usually go, or that's usually low in alcoholics, and that can go with QTC prolongation and hypokay. AVBG to look at his, what we're thinking is an acidosis, look at his like PCO2 and his bicarb. And then also his alcohol level is where does he stand on the spectrum? As a resident, I know you work with different attendings, and I know that some of them will scold you or chide you or encourage you on a variety of labs. Absolutely. Uh, Lactate becoming controversial, a number of other things being controversial. But I love alcohol physiology, alcoholic physiology, because these are such, like, every number can be read. It's one of the few patients where you can get the labs back and everything is read, and you can still discharge them. And... (laughs) And they're like, it's, it's like, it's like extreme sports. It's like altitude sports. And they walk around like this all the time and you see them regularly. And you also, I, I'm, and the CBC, even like their platelets, like I was thinking, so you listed everything and I was like, but even platelets, they might right. have platelets and glucose. of 10. I forgot glucose. How do you decide which patients you're going to get all those labs on since you're seeing so many of these patients every day and you want to keep your emergency department moving? This person looked different. He didn't look like your straightforward alcohol withdrawal. And he had, like I said, belly pain, like out of proportion to his exam. And looking in his history in the past, he had been somebody that had been admitted to the hospital with electrolyte abnormalities and acid base disturbances. Also, he's a type 1 diabetic who was obviously not taking care of himself. And so that in and of itself, I think, demands a, a more conservative workup. Yeah, that's a great point. You just pick something up. You know, you, you see, you might see that patient twice a week for three or four years, but you know that this week is different. And I've definitely had seasoned attendees come up and say, he's just different than today. Today's a different day. And you brought up some red flags that would make you want to look for other things. I think that the beautiful thing in this situation is benzos, benzos, benzos with fluids and uh, get your labs back. And usually people start to turn around. I think there's more to the story than just that, though, in this case. So it turns out that Easley's hunch was correct, and the labs were about to indicate that this patient was going in a different direction than uh, his past visits. He had a point of care glucose at that time that was 133, so I wasn't concerned about hyperglycemia and its complications and or hypoglycemia. He felt a little bit better with his 
when he was placed on the alcohol withdrawal protocol. As labs started to trickle back in, so his Chem 7 was notable for an anion gap of 24, a potassium of 2.9, and a bicarb of 14, with, again, a normal glucose, and then no azotemia or elevated creatinine. And then his VBG came back as well with a pH of 7.3 and a PCO2 of 28. Okay. And were any of those labs concerning? He obviously had a a metabolic acidosis, a gap metabolic acidosis. And then when his lactate came back at seven, we were considering that it was just purely a lactic acidosis versus other acidoses that can happen in the alcoholic patient. I think that this is probably one of those points in a patient's care where these were unexpected findings necessarily. You were looking for them, but you weren't sure you were going to find them. And so this is one of those juncture points in the patient's care where time-sensitive interventions and time-sensitive thought processes are invoked. Right. Absolutely. With an elevated lactate of seven, of course, we're like concerned for sepsis, right? Because he's diaphoretic, he's super tachycardic, his belly hurts real bad. But he did respond to the fluids and the benzos. And so we were less concerned at that point and so didn't initiate like broad spectrum antibiotics. But what we did consider is, you know, whether or not this patient needed imaging. We were thinking um, with a belly that was uh, not peritoneal that there might be a component of ketoacidosis that was causing ileus and bad belly pain and that that might be or there might be a component of alcoholic gastritis. And that this wasn't someone that needed an acute surgical process, but we did obtain a CT scan on him given his pain out of proportion to his exam and the degree of his elevated lactate to make sure that there wasn't any uh, ischemic process going on. I think you run into a situation in these situations, in this particular clinical presentation where you know the patient's going to be admitted, you're going to be interfacing with other consultation and admitting services, and you need to have, I think, the conversation with them at some point, are they willing to take this patient on their service? When I've had these conversations in in this clinical context before, people are always very concerned. Do they have ischemic gut? Do they have something more serious going on, a peritonitis or, or an intra-abdominal abscess causing all these derangements? So I don't see a way of getting out of, or maybe we shouldn't get out of, advanced imaging on this guy. So he gets a CT scan Rarely we'll find something surgical that surprises us. Typically it's reassuring and the inpatient team then can take it from there. No, I think that's, that's an excellent point. And realistically, um, I think I've mentioned this, but the alcoholics are truly fascinating because they can have such a wide variety of metabolic derangements, a lot of red numbers on their labs. They are effectively immunosuppressed in many ways. They are at higher risk of trauma in many ways. They are at higher risk of infection in many ways. They are unreliable historians. M&Ms are filled with pages of presenting alcoholics. At the same time, the majority of patients that we see that come in with alcohol intoxication get discharged. And so, yes, many of us have been bitten by missing a diagnosis in alcoholic. So it's hard not to do advanced imaging in these kinds of patients. And so, uh, so you got the elevated lactate and the acidosis. And in this case, the patient's interesting because he's diabetic. Right. Okay. So did you think he had DKA? No. Why not? Well, because at this point, I'm thinking that his acidosis 
largely could be driven by his elevated lactate, which I'm thinking is from hypovolemia, from him vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. But we're, of course, like I said, we're going to go and evaluate for an acute surgical or intra-abdominal catastrophe that's causing that. But with a blood sugar in the 130s, I wasn't thinking that this was DKA, just based on that. And I know that it can be, you can get DKA with like even normal sugars, but also in the setting of significant alcohol, I know that that changes your hormonal milieu. And so more thinking that it was having to do with his alcohol intake as opposed to diabetic ketoacidosis. Okay. And was it at this point that I was, I was nearby and I was grabbed or was that later? It was right now because I was thinking to myself, is there a component of alcoholic ketoacidosis that is contributing here and possibly driving this presentation, causing him to have ketoacidosis, bad belly pain, worsened vomiting, worsening dehydration, and that elevating his lactate. And I think that was a great, that was a stellar, stellar call and a sterile thought process. I don't think you should have stopped there and not done anything else, but asking that question is, is really the focus of today's discussion of alcoholic ketoacidosis. Thanks. <laughs> Imagine that, the toxicologist thinking it's a stellar call to call him and get him involved. I oh. didn't call him. He oh, wait, was, he was in, in the ED. He's in emergency I position, so he likes to be consulted. <laughs> don't we all have, ouch, don't we all have ears? And we're, you, you ever do that where you just pick up things around you, right? You hear an ambulance is coming in. You hear there's a sick patient. You hear a nurse talk to another nurse about how the patient doesn't want pain meds. And you're just focusing on that in the department. And so very often in the department, if I hear about something interesting, I'll, I'll dive in and I'll jump in. And realistically, while everything isn't talks, everything is talks. And so that's, that's a great thing. That's a fun thing. So in this particular case, I, I decided to stick my nose in and talk to you about this. And we kind of talked about alcoholic ketoacidosis. So how does, how does a case of alcoholic ketoacidosis present? Typically, it's someone with chronic alcohol abuse and a history of a recent binge and poor PO intake otherwise. Tons of nausea, vomiting, maybe more abdominal pain than you're used to. And recent history of recurrent episodes, which I think was the case in this situation. Clinically, these people are hypotensive, tachycardic, sometimes they'll have an increased respiratory rate. And they'll have abdominal tenderness, but it really doesn't localize. But the key thing that maybe differentiates them from maybe the diabetic ketoacidotic patient is the mental status. Uh, these patients tend to have very clear mental status without alteration. Whereas the people with more severe DKA tend to be somnolent, irritable, arousable, but uh, clearly not awake and alert. We veer from the point a little bit here, trying to determine if you could have normal glycemic DKA in an alcoholic with a bad liver. But for the sake of simplicity, I'll skip over some of that. This would be a, a good point to, to bring out a, a new a novel class of agents, the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors or the sodium glucose cotransport 2 inhibitors. These agents help treat diabetes by increasing glycosuria, so people essentially pee out glucose. The problem with that, though, is there have been multiple case reports described of euglycemic ketoacidosis. That's it. DKA except euglycemia because they pee out that extra glucose. So just something to consider. In this particular case, luckily, our alcoholic diabetic was not on these agents, but keep that in your back pocket. Just booze. Just booze. <laughs> it's what's for dinner. So, and <laughs> breakfast and lunch. So, all right. We were talking about this. I think uh, Dr. Overbeck had a great description of what somebody with AKA presents with. And 
This is a historical phenomenon that was described as far back as the 40s and then the 70s, where there are these cases, reading old case reports is so great because they're always so blunt, but these cases of chronic alcoholics who would come in looking like DKA except having normal blood sugars. And this is becoming more and more important because one of the key findings in AKA is now one of our key quality measures in anyone you think might have infection at some point. The lactate. The lactate, yes. The the advent. I think our ordering of lactates has gone up, I don't know, 5,000% in the last years. Yes. I wish I had the lactate concession in our emergency department because uh, Woody Allen, no? Okay. <laughs> Did Woody Allen sell lactate? He said, I wish I had the penicillin concession for that building. I uh, chose to delete the several minutes of uproarious laughter that followed this joke uh, just to speed things along. Anyway, yeah, so, so nowadays we're getting more and more lactates. And so we're running into these patients where traditionally we'd say, ah, he's an alcoholic. Maybe he has pancreatitis or gastritis. Maybe he's withdrawing. Maybe he has some infection or other thing. And now we're getting the lactate. And so this is the lactate of seven. Dr. Eastley, have you seen a lot of lactates of seven? No. Usually when I see an elevated lactate with sepsis, it's like three, four, maybe five. And then if it's like somebody with a seizure and it's like 17, 20, and you know, we're all like, it's seizure. And I think that's just something interesting from just a, a general ER doc is the lactates get the toxicology team more excited because we're not supposed to be seeing lactates of 15, 17, 18 we're supposed to be seeing lactates of three, four, and five. So I think you guys have helped me kind of think through that. And it's almost like a, uh-oh, when I see a double-digit lactate. I think that's a good point. I think most of us, if we see an elevated lactate, it's mildly elevated. And more than that, the survival, they pretty much don't survive. And so whenever I think of AKA, I always think of the guy with a super high lactate who looks much better than their lactate. I think certainly the degree of lactate is, is always a bit of a clue when you start thinking about things like metformin toxicity or some of the antiretrovirals when you see these really high lactates. And, you know, we throw on things like cyanide, but usually cyanide sort of self-evident for other reasons, and you're not going to stumble to that diagnosis by looking at a lactate. No, that's that's uh, very true. And really what we're kind of diving this down into is the type A lactic acidosis, which are largely due to uh, often an ischemic or hypoxic area where they're shifting towards anaerobic metabolism and you're developing more lactate, which are often coincidental with acidemias, and type Bs, which are much more metabolic process, which are often due to drugs or other things. And so the metformin as a type B, the alcoholic ketoacidosis as a type B are a good way to think about it. And it's important to think about that because they have different outcomes, they have different prognoses, and as we'll discuss, they have different treatments. And what is it when you have liver dysfunction and you don't clear lactate? Where does that fit in the type A or type B? I am interested in the question more than the answer because my understanding is you can't truly predict lactate clearance based on liver function and there may be some evidence that suggests people clear lactate reasonably well even in fulminant hepatic failure and the idea that you might initially attribute a lactic acidosis to someone with liver failure you might be missing other diagnoses that you can actually do something about i think that's an excellent point 
And because realistically, lactate is not an evil thing that uh, we are afflicted with. Lactate is something that our body has developed on purpose. When we don't go into the TCA cycle to metabolize and we have to do something with that pyruvate, we shunt it over to lactate. And sometimes that's due to local hypoxia or something else. And what happens with traditionally with that lactate is it goes to other parts of the body and the lactate gets converted back to pyruvate and can be used for energy. And while that does happen in the liver, it happens elsewhere also. I think a great example of this is lactated ringers, right? We talk about how normal saline is effectively a a Lewis acid, and we talk about how we give LR to prevent acidosis. But if you're giving somebody lactate, why would that help with their acid base? And it's because in and of itself, lactate is actually a, a proton acceptor. It actually helps. And so there's a big movement in a variety of areas to try to get away from flat out saying when you see a lactate, lactic acidosis, because it can exist independent of that. Your question specifically about liver, I think, is a great example. I'm sure there are some people that have impaired metabolisms due to a variety of factors, including liver dysfunction, as well as nutritional deficiencies and other problems where they don't clear their lactate as well. However, just assuming that that's the case is an easy way to miss it. I think a great analogy to that is seeing somebody with renal dysfunction who has an elevated troponin. And all the time we get told, ignore troponins in people who have elevated renal dysfunction because they don't clear their troponin. But my question is always, but the troponin is coming from somewhere, right? And so it's just something that has to be interpreted. And I guess because it's not due to hypoxia or hypoxemia, I believe I classify that as a type B, but I've heard some people also consider that type A. It's really, though, in that case, a decreased metabolism of lactate. I think the only other thing I'd add is that if you're seeing, if you're attributing a high lactate to someone not clearing it, they should be in liver failure. This isn't somebody with mild liver disease. It's really somebody who's in the ICU and, and is probably approaching a liver transplant. Yes. As long as there's that little bit of liver left, it'll keep trying as hard as it can to metabolize that lactate. And so, yeah, alcoholics do uh, punish their livers, but they still have them. Can I just jump in real quick? The idea that sepsis is still on our differential, I I think that exists and I think it's something we can do something about. And I think when we treat it aggressively and early, uh, we can affect outcomes. So in this situation, we may be headed down an AKA interesting case, but I think we still need to keep that broad differential in mind and, and really throw the kitchen sink at people that present like this. I was going to say the other thing I think we need to consider at least is that this is a false positive lactate because it's recently become a little more apparent that, uh, you can get false positive lactates in the setting of toxic alcohol poisoning and ethylene glycol poisoning. And while this case doesn't have all the characteristics I would expect to see because the renal function is normal, we certainly have seen cases where lactic acidosis has been diagnosed when in reality it was actually uh, ethylene glycol poisoning. Take that one step further, Kenan, and tell me how ethylene glycol gives me a false positive lactate. Most institutions are using a a lactate assay that's not particularly specific for lactate, and the metabolites of ethylene glycol can give you a false positive. And we had a case in the not-too-distant past of of a patient who was a Munchausen patient and would actually drink ethylene glycol, come in and, and tell everyone that he had a history of lactic acidosis. And get admitted to the ICU multiple times. That was a truly unique case. It's one of the reasons I love toxicology is people are always trying to figuring out new ways to do different things to their body. We've talked about how the findings are often abdominal pain. They often have a normal, sometimes a low glucose and an elevated lactate. And they often just gestalt-wise don't necessarily seem as sick as their lactate would suggest. Physiologically, 
the reason why they get a lactatemia is very interesting because they don't actually always have an acidosis. In this particular case, the gentleman had an acidosis, and sometimes that's due to nausea and vomiting and dehydration, as you've pointed out. But uh, Dr. Hurd, do you have any comments on the, why these people get lactatemias? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, lactate, as you mentioned, is a mechanism to basically regenerate NAD from NADH. And when you go through your glycolytic pathway, you know, it's kind of hard to do this without a board. You know, taking the board away from the toxicologist is always tricky. But you regenerate by taking your pyruvate and converting it to lactate. You regenerate NAD, which allows you to maintain your glycolysis. Now, in alcoholic ketoacidosis, since the main sort of lesion, if you will, is that you can't take pyruvate and put it into the TCA cycle, you end up with a lot of pyruvate, you need to regenerate NAD, so you make lactate. That's the sort of working theory on it. Yeah, and part of the metabolism of ethanol is, actually, Dr. Issa, you probably know the metabolism of ethanol. Ethanol is metabolized to acetaldehyde by alcohol dehydrogenase, creating NADH from NAD, and then is further metabolized by acetaldehyde dehydrogenase into acetate, and then further into acetoacetate, generating another round of NADH. And so ultimately what you have created is a ketone, acetate, acetoacetate, and then further beta-hydroxybutyrate, and two rounds of NADH. So you accumulate NADH. And so those of you whose eyes are swimming and heads are swimming right now, you can go back and listen to that again. But at the end of the day, just remember that alcoholics are swimming in NADH. Yes, lots and lots of NADH, not so much NAD. Yes, spot on. And what you'll find talked about more and more is the NADH to NAD ratio, which is kind of an indicator of the oxidation state of a patient. Also, fun fact, the reason why your Asian friends can't drink a lot sometimes is because they often have lower levels of acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. So that ethanol that gets converted to acetaldehyde just stays at acetaldehyde, which makes them sick. It's very similar to the mechanism when someone takes antabuse, or if they have a metronidazole or a disulfram-like reaction, then they get a buildup of that acetaldehyde and they get sick. So alcoholics are just NADH replete. And because they have too much NADH, they end up shunting that pyruvate into lactate to help regenerate NAD. Yeah, so if you ever want to sound cool, you can always talk about the NADH to NAD ratio. And then also something that that Eastley kind of hinted at too is the ultimate products of this. And so we end up with acetoacetate, and that gets metabolized to beta-hydroxybutyrate. And one of the key points that Dr. Overbeck, you brought up with this patient was one of the lab findings that was suspiciously negative. It's the NAD-NADH ratio. Exactly. We sent that, but it was a send-out. We weren't going to get that back for four days. I didn't know there was math involved in this case presentation. Oh, it's... Yeah, repeat the question again, just so... Were there ketones or not? (laughs) Karnak. (laughs) Negative ketones. We're going to get a turban because Dr. Overbeck just did a very, uh, do you know what he just did? No. He's, I was going to say, no. right? He ancient. No, no television in terms of his ancient Yeah, an ancient reference. Johnny Carson impersonation. We'll get him a turban. That's Go on. wild, wacky stuff. That's just wild. Okay. So but, I think when you guys thought about this patient, you were thinking AKA, but there was a notable lab abnormality that you would expect to find that you didn't. We were stumped because we thought it would fit AKA perfectly. 
but then the serum ketones came back negative. So you had alcoholic no-ketone acidosis. Yeah, it's A-N-K-A. As in Paul Anka? Okay. Sorry, I've just been watching the Gilmore Girls. It's great. So, all right. So the question is, can you have alcoholic ketoacidosis without having any ketones? And my answer to you was yes. And I believe it's because it depends on what your lab is measuring. So I think in the alcoholic patient or the patient with alcoholic ketoacidosis, you have beta hydroxybutyrate about 10 times more than you see acetate or acetoacetate. And the typical lab lab analysis for, of ketones is uh, not beta hydroxybutyrate. And so you can have a negative ketone level. Because beta hydroxybutyrate is not a ketone. It is a beta hydroxy alcohol. Right. Wow. You say right like you knew that. I yeah, didn't have no, that in no, my no, pocket. She also pretended to know about Johnny Carson. So I think that's a great example. And this is a, a great example of the thing that we say we find that the lab tells us is there is not actually what is there. This is a great example when someone tells me they don't have any opiates on board because their opiate screen is negative, or they must have opiates on board because their opiate screen is positive. We spend very little time learning about what labs mean and how to interpret them, and we often take them at face value. And this is a great example where the lab can lead you down the wrong path. So the question is, how do you treat this patient who has possible alcoholic ketoacidosis? You trust the toxicologist because they're not there to fool you. So you give them NAC. Benzos. No. Supportive care. B vitamins. Potassium. Actually, you're, Sugar. you're not wrong, right? So, so traditionally, also on top of this, and actually as easily you pointed out, these patients often, often have been vomiting, so they have a catecholamine surge that can also shift some of the metabolic pathways towards lactate. That's classically sometimes why you'll see an elevated lactate after someone who's been getting a lot of albuterol. And these patients are dehydrated, so they can be hypoperfusing, and that can also cause a lactatemia. So there's really multifactorial reasons as to why they can get an elevated lactate. And just as quickly as the lactate comes on, the lactate can go away. So tr historically, if you had this patient, you would give them, if you only had one thing to give them, what would you give them? Glucose. Fluid. Tiebreaker? Thiamine. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is, you're all wrong. No. Um, More alcohol. <laughs> right, this is this is one of those cases. Give them a, give them a Actually, sandwich. That's a great point, though. So often with alcoholics, the treatment is more alcohol. This is one of those cases where the treatment is not more alcohol. More alcohol will generate more NADH and more derangements and cause problems. So I would I would vote with Doctor Hurd not only because we're both toxicologists, but because fluid really is resuscitation is the key to and treating I'm your this. Boss. And and he's my boss. Uh, Fluid is the key to treating alcoholic ketoacidosis. And so if you have nothing else, if you just give these guys a lot of fluid, I like normal saline. Some people, I guess, might do lactated ringers, although would, would the nurses yell at you if you want to give lactated ringers to a patient with an elevated lactate? Do you say lactated ringers? Lactated. Oh, lactated ringers. I thought... <laughs> It's very expensive. It's, it's LR. Like, LR. Yeah, a grande. So I would, I, would give five a, bucks. I would give a lot of fluid, but recently, actually not recently, I would give a lot of fluid, but years ago, there was a small number of studies that indicated that glucose-containing fluids can help speed recovery and can help decrease the acidosis faster. So there tends to be more of a use of uh, D5 normal. Saline. Yeah. So I got an interesting question for you because because the theory is always that you give them glucose and it causes their insulin levels to rise because they're getting more glucose and that restores the normal metabolic pathway in a diabetic who does not theoretically make insulin 
do you have to give additional insulin? Because we know you don't have to do it in normal, healthy patients. So in this patient, was the appropriate treatment to give dextrose plus insulin or just treat him like a normal AKA patient where you just would give him fluids and sugar and some vitamins? So what happened when you treated him? He got better. What'd you treat him with? Fluids and benzos. Did you give him insulin? No, not initially. We almost did for the wrong reason. Is there always a wrong reason to give insulin? Uh, hypoglycemia. Okay, that would be bad. Right. We in the emergency department didn't start him on any insulin infusion. Did he get hypoglycemic? No. But then when he got up to the medical ICU where he ultimately was dispositioned, they started him on, on his insulin regimen. So yeah, so, so fluids and glucose, that's a great question as to whether or not you would need to give any insulin. I also think it's interesting. I think we tend to see a spectrum of patients who are kind of type 2, type 1, who often make a minuscule amount of insulin, but are insulin deficient generally, and so they might have a little bit on board. The other thing that's interesting, and when this was brought up with a critical care conference recently, a number of people talked about occasionally seeing a case where you just give tons and tons of fluids and glucose, and they still never get better until you give them one more thing. Do you know what that one more thing might be, Dr. Easley? It's thiamine. Yes, and it's, it's because one of the metabolic derangements is not having thiamine, which is an important cofactor for a lot of these processes, and because we know alcoholics are often vitamin deficient, specifically thiamine deficient, which is why they get those wonderful Wernicke-Korsakovs and sometimes beriberi and a variety of other things, giving the thiamine can sometimes be that last step towards treating them. And it's not a bad thing. So if you're going to admit someone with alcoholic ketoacidosis in addition to aggressively resuscitating them with glucose-containing fluids, I would also give them everyone's favorite thiamine and banana bag. So in summary, the management would include dextrose-containing fluids and a whole lot of it. Probably potassium as their potassium whole body depleted, magnesium and phosphate as needed, and then thiamine. Yes, and then don't stop thinking about sepsis and other uh, etiologies. And so it's very reasonable if you haven't completely ruled out sepsis to empirically treat these patients with antibiotics. And I think it's interesting too, because at a recent conference, this was brought up and I've seen this countless times. I'm sure everyone here has seen this multiple times. And the question is, does it matter? They have a lactate of seven. If they don't have sepsis, if they're not in end stage CHF, does it matter that they have a metabolic derangement? Given the trajectory of my care for these patients over a decade and a half, I'd say, thankfully, it probably doesn't matter a lot of the time because I don't investigate these people as often as maybe they might require it. I think we're looking a lot more carefully now than we did 10 years ago. And so I think we're finding more and admitting more people to the hospital. But I think in the past, we've, you know, treat them with benzos, treat them with fluids, get them a little nutrition, make sure they can pass a PO challenge and they're off and running again. And I wonder how many of those people in the large majority of these kind of patients just end up doing okay over the two or four or six hours that I see them and then they go home and they're, they're fine for some period of time. Well, and I think one thing that is important is kind of stopping the feed forward cycle because I think that's like what defines the alcoholic ketoacidosis that needs to come into the hospital is that if their hypovolemia is so bad and only getting worse by the fact that they've got ketoacidosis that's making them vomit and vomit further, that they're like not even able to tolerate any type of food or fluids and or their own alcohol. So then, then they're in bad withdrawal. At that point, they're so dysregulated that I think that they do warrant coming in. But I think that if it's not like the positive feedback loop gone awry, then it doesn't, like you said, doesn't 
matter. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there is one or two slightly concerning articles where they retrospectively look at sudden death in alcoholics, those alcoholics that seem to be doing fine and they're just found dead. And there is a higher incidence of beta-hydroxybutyrate and alcoholic ketoacidosis in those patients. So though I don't know you can say that anyone has specifically died from AKA, it can be associated with an increased risk of death, which is some reason why we address it also. I think the other thing that it's worth saying is that generally, while it does get better, like Mike mentioned, with relatively straightforward treatments, you're not going to know it gets better unless you look. So the key to treating these folks is really doing a lot of reassessments, repeating that lab, get that bicarb again, get the lactate again, and see if it's getting better. If it's responding to your treatment, then it seems consistent with alcoholic ketoacidosis. But if it's not, then you really do start need, need to start chasing those things like sepsis or dead gut or all the other concerns that we brought up when we first started talking about the case. Well, Ken, and how often would you say clinically you see a higher lactate and you're intervening and then rechecking. Is that something you typically do? I, I do. I think that these people, I mean, these, these people are, are going to get better relatively quickly. And if you give them fluids and sugar and you're cycling their labs initially every couple hours, you may be able to forego some of those other tests. Because if they're going in the direction that you want, then, you know, you can say, hey, this is all consistent with alcoholic ketoacidosis. It's the ones who don't respond to the treatment where you need to start thinking, hey, maybe there's something else going on. And that's when you're kind of broadening your infectious, but also your tox differential in terms of toxic alcohols and a variety of other things. I think the other thing where this comes up is this particular patient looking at their records. It looks like at various points they have been discharged, admitted to the ICU, admitted to the medical floor. And very often, I think because we have a very supportive observation unit, admitted to our observation unit. And the difficulty is when you want to admit the patient with stable vital signs and elevated lactate where you have sort of ruled out sepsis and you feel fairly certain on your diagnosis and you try to admit this patient to the floor and what you are told is no, no one can go to the floor with an elevated lactate. And that's where I feel like the sepsis warriors have won a little bit. And so now all elevated lactate is sepsis and all elevated lactate is treated as if it's a septic source and thus the prognosis is the same. A septic patient with a lactate of seven has a horrible mortality. A AKA patient with a lactate of seven has a great mortality. And so just um, having these conversations frequent and often with your admitting services about what the etiology is, is an important thing. Their short-term mortality is good. Their long-term mortality is probably not so good. That's true. And that's why when we CAT scan them, we don't feel so bad. <laughs> What's the happy note we're going to end on? The happy note we're going to end on is... This show was brought to you by Trump Vodka. If you're going to get AKA, drink Trump Vodka. It's the best. Your lactic yeah. acidosis is going to be huge. Huge. Amazing. Bigly. Bigly. Yeah. Um, Bigly. <laughs> they sold it in Israel because it was kosher for Passover. Uh, so, no, I, I uh, and, and, and what's interesting is in reviewing this, this, this patient, we see that this patient has since then presented again and before then presented. And very often these patients get missed and never found out. And they're diagnosed with chronic pancreatitis, though their labs are all fine. They're diagnosed with gastritis. They're diagnosed with a lot of other things, but people don't always hit at the underlying metabolic derangements. Some of these patients have gone to the OR with abdominal pain and elevated lactate. So just raising the awareness of this and knowing how to treat it and so that you can be a pro when you see these labs come back, when you can be the expert. And I think one of the things you mentioned early on that's worth reemphasizing is these are guys, or generally guys, but these patients usually look 
amazingly well despite profound metabolic abnormalities. So you see folks with a pH of 7.2 or lower who's talking to you. And yes, they don't look well, but they're, they look a lot better than you'd expect for a pH of 7.2. And in the setting of an alcoholic who looks that well, you can start to limit the differential diagnosis a little bit because if he had any, a lot of the other causes, they should be a lot sicker. I think that's true. Did you have any other happy notes to end on, Dr. Overbeck? Just challenging case. I think Dr. Easley did a, a, a splendid job of taking care of this patient and not just accepting what we might have. We kind of fall into a trap sometimes of trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. And this didn't add up, didn't add up, didn't add up, and had enough concerning features that she got the right people involved and the patient ultimately did very well. A quick recap for learners. You're going to be looking for patients with AKA. Generally, they are often going to have a anion gap metabolic acidosis. Their blood sugar is going to be normal or low as opposed to someone with DKA. And their lactate will seem to not correlate with their clinical condition often. They might have ketones. However, depending on how your lab does the assay, ketones might not be present on your lab assay. Clinically, they're going to have a recent alcohol binge, although with a chronic alcoholic, that can be hard to identify. They're going to have some nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And if you check their record, they might have had this before. Management is going to include aggressive hydration, often with glucose-containing fluids like 5% dextrose. You might also give them a thiamine supplementation and their electrolytes with magnesium and phosphate. And always be looking out for other possible dangerous etiologies such as sepsis or like an abdominal catastrophe. Well, that was a great show. I want to thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, send us your questions and comments to TalksNow at TalksNow.org or tweet at us at TalksNow and comment in the iTunes store. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. TalksNow is produced by Matt Zuckerman with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W or via our Facebook page, or tweet us at TalksNow. I think we should all sing uh, 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 Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Kumbaya, Yahweh. Kumbaya. Yahweh? I haven't heard that one. I'm trying to, you know, wind it all in. It's Festivus. Have yourself a, a merry, merry little Christmas. Christmas. That's all. No, there's a second version none of us know. You're as lovable as a cactus. You're as huggable as a the skunk. Grinch. Mr. Grinch. You're a peanut butter something something with extra something sauce. I think there's an arsenic sauce, which a toxicologist should be able to recite. Actually, you know that, that the Grinch story with is actually... arsenic sauce. That's actually about uh, an alcoholic. The Grinch was an alcoholic. He developed beriberi, and that's why his heart grew two sizes that day. And he had ascites, obviously. Exactly. He was, yeah. he was sickly. He was green. Uh, he, yeah. <laughs> he never ate that well at all, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he ate all the candy. But he stole he, all the drink. I thought he stole, he stole it. Stole the drink. Oh. That was the real reason he went down to Whoville. And the roast beast. And all those who's down in Whoville. <laughs> the roast beast.